James chapter 1. In our study of James thus far, we have seen that in response to trials in our lives, we can choose one of two paths, either the path of endurance that leads to maturity or the path of disobedience that leads to death. You may remember that we've concluded from James's example of poverty and wealth that all of life may be considered trials, that all of life may be considered a testing of our faith. And everything we are to choose, which path we will walk. In verses 5 through 11, which we studied several weeks ago, James calls on his readers to walk in the path of wisdom. That is, in the midst of trials, to ask for wisdom, to see through to the truth of things and not be taken in by the facade. To know that if I'm rich, that's absolutely nothing. I am poor in the sight of God. If I'm poor, that is nothing. I am God's child. We are to ask for wisdom to remember the purpose of trials. We are to ask for wisdom to keep in mind the final goal. In verses 12 through 18, which we looked at last Sunday, James calls on us to walk in the path or the way of knowledge. A knowledge about ourselves, a knowledge about the work of God in us, and a knowledge of the difference or the different natures that we have. The source of temptation, James tells us, is not God, but the sinfulness of our own hearts. You see, the enemy is not within the camp, within our hearts. Our hearts, in fact, are the enemy. And we saw this at the end of the sermon last week. I want to spend a bit of time on it. In the path of wisdom, James describes God as the giving God. In the way of knowledge, he is not only the giving God, he is that because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. But he is the Father of the heavenly lights. He is the Father who chose to give us birth. God does not change like shifting shadows. He is not double-minded, tossed like waves as so, so often we are. He does not change. He is the one who began this whole process by giving us birth. But let's talk about it. What does James mean? when he refers to God as the Father of heavenly lights. What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think, is particularly helpful here, and I read part of it last week. Let me read it to you again. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. By the way, this, Paul would say this is the way we all are before we come to faith in Christ. He continues by saying, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge or to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is the God who said, let there be light in creation, also caused the light to shine in our hearts. And this ties in with God giving us birth in that the process of salvation begins with God opening our eyes to see the truth of who we are. And we see that truth in his word, and then we respond in repentance. You see, before we come to faith in Christ, we are dead. Okay, we are dead in our sins. And as we saw last week, death is separation. We are separated from God. But the same God who began creation 
What are the first words that God says when he begins creation? Let there be light. That is the beginning of creation. He begins the process of salvation on our hearts by causing his light to shine in our hearts that we might see the truth and respond. Paul alludes to this, and I, I mentioned this in a different context last week. In Acts chapter 26, he is giving his defense before King Agrippa, and he's talking about God's commission, how God called him to do a particular work. God says to him, I am sending you to them, that is the Gentiles, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. Uh, it's one of those things that we sort of skip over and we, we sort of miss. But if you follow what Paul is saying, God says to him, what I want you to do is to preach, and when you preach, their eyes will be opened, and when their eyes are opened, they will see that they are in darkness, and they will turn from darkness to light. In the same way, James basically says that God first gives us an understanding, an appreciation, and then we respond with faith and repentance. We don't have the ability to understand it on our own. The Father of heavenly lights must give us light to understand. And the first thing we understand when he opens our eyes and gives us the light is, I'm a sinner. I am lost. I am without hope. And then we turn to him. The way of knowledge also includes knowledge about our old nature and the beginning of a new one. And we have to understand this is something that is difficult for us because it's not simply a matter of knowledge. You know, we know that there's a part of us that fights against God. There's a part of us that wants to follow God. But it isn't simply knowing that is important. It is, in fact, how we respond to this knowledge. There's always a battle that is going on within us. And we have to ask ourselves, will we follow the old way, which is easy because that's what comes naturally to us? Uh, desire. It just sort of is the easy way to go. Or will we, in fact, follow the new way, which is more difficult? Uh, it involves the long haul. It is strange. It, it requires endurance. It, it is quite difficult. Which will we choose? And knowledge is not the key, because we know what is the right thing to do. The problem is knowing is not enough. We must choose to do what is right. But God has given us this light that through the word of truth we might become a kind of first fruits. First fruits in the Old Testament are very important. You know, first fruits to us doesn't really mean anything, but in the Old Testament, very important. Everything belongs to God. That's a given in the Old Testament. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. But the first fruits, that is, when a tree or a plant gives its first fruit, that is special. That belongs to God in a special way. They were to be sep separated as holy to God, and there was a, spe a special feast, the Feast of the First Fruits, when these are brought and they are given to God. In the same way, uh, what James, I think, is saying is those who are God's people, everyone belongs to God. Okay? But in a special way, his people belong to him as first fruits do. He has given them new life. And he makes them holy. Today we come to a new section, verses 19 through 25. And one might wonder as we read it what the connection is with the previous section, or if there is one. Um, there is one. But before we get into it, I, I want you to remind, 
to remind you of something, something to keep in the back of your minds. James is nothing if not intensely practical. Uh, this is not some abstract theological letter. There is intense practicality here and application. The connection between what we saw last week and what we will see today is the concept of the Word of God. If you look at verse number 18, that he, he chose to give us birth through the Word of Truth. And then when you go to verse number 21, we read about the Word uh, planted in you. Verses 22 and 23, we see the Word. And then in verse 25, the perfect law that gives freedom. And we will see the transition in verses 23 to 25. This passage has three parts. Um, and I think it will sort of unfold for us and, and give us understanding. Let's read verses 19 through 25 and then go through it. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. How are we to respond to the word of God? Well, in three ways, and this is how the passage unfolds. We are to hear the word of God, we are to receive the word of God, we are to obey the word of God. Seems fairly simple, but I think James has some very profound things to say here. The section begins with a call to take note. My dear brothers, take note. James is beginning to tie loose ends together. But again, uh, as a pastor, he is writing to those who are his dear brothers. I think there is real affection here. The pattern was established in our salvation. That is, God caused the light to shine into our hearts. It enabled us to hear the word of truth and then to repent and come to faith. Light, word, birth. Okay. In the same way, we see that God continues to give us light and he has given us his word. And the question is, will we continue? Will we hear what he has to say? What we should do, James tells us, is listen, listen, listen. It begins the section, everyone should be quick to listen. Um, he continues, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, this would suggest, and most people, I think, when they read this passage, that James is not talking about our relationship to Scripture, but he's talking about our relationship to other people. Uh, and certainly when you look at uh, the last part, slow to become angry, that doesn't really seem to refer to our relationship to the Word of God. But I would suggest to you that James, a very wise pastor, is bringing two things together that should always go together. And we want to separate them. Scripture doesn't, and James brings them together. And that is, what he is speaking about here is our relationship to Scripture and our relationship to our fellow man. Okay. 
we need to understand that how we treat other people is important. We are to be quick to listen to what Scripture says, but we should equally be quick to listen to what other people say. Not to say that what they're speaking is the truth, okay? but we should be those who listen and those who are slow to speak. I think it is in our everyday lives that we are to be trained, that it is in our everyday lives that we are to develop the skill of listening and the skill of not speaking too much. We are to learn the skill of avoiding anger. We can do this, I think, with Scripture as well. That is, by discipline, we can say, I will listen to what Scripture says, and I will let it speak rather than me. But I fear that far too many Christians imagine that there, something magical happens when they are alone and they read Scripture, that that is what transforms them into a more mature Christian. That is what changes them into the person that God wants them to be. I think it is in our dealings with other people that we develop these virtues. I would remind you of the two great commandments. We are to love the Lord our God with all our being, and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. And it is in loving our neighbors as ourselves that we show that, in fact, we love God with all our being. They're not two separate realities. They go together. And so we are to develop the skill of listening. And as we are in the marketplace, as we deal with people, and we develop that skill, it prepares us so that when we come to Scripture, we are, in fact, ready to listen to what God has to say. Someone has said that the great talker is rarely a great listener, and anger is often a reflection of closed ears. No, we should be quick to listen. I was telling uh, Tom earlier, I wish that James had sort of changed the second part of this, though, where he had said, slow to speak. It would have been easier if James had just said, never speak. Okay. Just listen and don't ever say a word. An absolute command, I think, is a lot easier than, than one that has a certain ambiguity to it. Um, we are to speak, but we are to be careful. We are to have wisdom to know when we are to speak and what we are supposed to say. The same thing about anger. It would have been easier if James had said, never get mad. Don't ever be angry. It's never right. End of story. In fact, if you look at verse number 20, he really seems to hint at human anger always being wrong. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So why doesn't he say, quick to listen, be really, really careful when you speak, and just never get mad? Well, sometimes anger is, in fact, appropriate. And both James and Paul, in their writings, allow for the possibility of righteous anger. You may know this from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin. Interestingly enough, a quote from Psalm 4.4. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So it is possible to be angry and not sin. But I think James and Paul are very well aware, and neither should we, that anger and sin are never that far apart. Both of them advise us to be very careful. Uh, 
they know that anger is not a pure emotion, that it is usually colored by self-centeredness, self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, stubbornness, and the list goes on and on and on. And so anger, more often than not, in fact, has a very sinful component to it. Yes, there is such a thing as holy anger. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I've not reached the stage in my life where I could claim to have holy anger. My anger is always contaminated by my own sinfulness. So, the first thing we are to do is to hear the word of God. The second thing we are to do is found in verse number 21. We are to receive the word of God. When we are exposed to it, when we hear it, then we are to receive it. Okay? And in this verse, James deals with four aspects of that receiving. Proper preparation, proper attitude, what is to be received, and the expected result. And if you look at the analogy... Uh, James says the word planted in you, one gets a picture of a garden or one who is a farmer. So the first thing that we do before we receive the word is we prepare our hearts. We get rid of the weeds of filth and evil. And those of you who do any type of gardening know that weeding is never done. The process, the weeds always are there. You always have to be pulling them out. In the same way, as we prepare our hearts and our lives to receive the truth, we're always cleaning house. There's always stuff to be gotten rid of. And then we are to have the re- required attitude, that is humility. If you look in verse number 21, uh, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word. What does that mean? I, I think it's different for different people. But those of you who are familiar with Scripture, as I am, I think humility means when we come to receive Scripture, we shouldn't say, oh, I know that. I've I've heard that before. And certainly if you read through Scripture or you listen to the Bible on tape or whatever, you become familiar with it. I think humility is not saying, well, I know that. Or saying, I understand that. I think that's part of it, but perhaps for James even more, it is to say, I will accept what it says. Uh, We live in a time, uh, maybe it's always been the human condition, where we are tempted to think that we know better than God. We are the age of the Jesus seminar, where people are voting on what what belongs in the Bible or not. A humble attitude is to say, this is Scripture, I will accept what it says, even the parts I don't like. The third thing is the word that has already been planted. And lastly, the fruit that will come about is our salvation. I want to move on to the last part, obeying the truth. One could argue that what James has said up to this point about the word of God has been passive, although that's been far from the case. We are to listen to the word. We are to humbly receive the word. Now James tells us we need to be active. We must be doers. And begins the paragraph with this warning. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And in verses 23 through 25, James gives us a comparison of what we should not be like and what we should be like. This is very similar, I think, to what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The wise man, someone who heard the word and put it into practice, the foolish man who heard it and did not put it into practice, a house 
on a foundation, on the stone, one who built a house on the sand. We should not be like someone who listens to the word and does not do what it says. And the analogy is a man who looks in the mirror and after looking goes away and he forgets what he looks like. It's it's important, I think, to understand that the analogy being used is not of someone who maybe is walking down the street and sees his or her reflection and, and sees themselves and then they keep walking and they forget what they look like. It is not a glance. It is someone who stares at themselves in the mirror for a while and then they go away and they forget what they look like. Now, James, this is only an analogy. He is not saying that we should be narcissistic and planted in front of mirrors. Okay? Uh, the failure of the man in this first analogy is that he goes away. He doesn't put into practice the things that he has heard. He has heard. And for myself, and I think just my background, this, I think, is what is so prevalent in the church today. There are people who know the Bible. They can quote you chapter and verse. They are so familiar with the Bible. They have been to Bible school, seminary, whatever. But they do not put it into practice. And, and not here at church, I'm saying, in the real world. And so they're like someone who looks and looks and looks and looks, and then they go away. What we should be like is someone who doesn't forget what he's heard. He puts into practice the law. And the analogy is a man who, rather than looking into a mirror, now the analogy has changed, looks into the law. And he continues to look into He doesn't go away. He continues to look into this. And he does what it tells him to do. He looks at the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, this phrase presents problems for a lot of people. Uh, Law and freedom are two words we generally do not put together. Uh, Law is seen as infringing on my freedom. Why does he call it the perfect law? Well, the law is a reflection of who God is. God is perfect. It is a perfect reflection of who he is. But I think more important than that, or that is important, maybe not more important, equally important, is that the law perfectly matches who we are. That is, God wants us to be as he intended. Sin has come in and messed that up. It's totally fouled up the whole thing. But the law puts us back on track to be the people God created us to be. That's why it's called the perfect law. But what about the, the perfect law of freedom? Stop and think a minute. When was the law of God given? It was given after God delivered Israel out of Egypt. A nation of slaves, suddenly they are a free people. And it is to these free people that God gives the law. Now, some would argue, I think rather cynically, that, oh, they were slaves and now God is somehow imposing all these rules and regulations. And if you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can hardly turn around without, I mean, there's laws for everything. It seems really, really, what's another form of slavery? But again, consider you're an Israelite. For four generations, your family have been slaves. Every action was dictated by your slave masters. 
Your master's told you what to do, where to work, how long to work, how hard to work. Suddenly, you're free. And the question comes up, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? God gives the law, and the law tells you what to do, not to imprison you, but to free you to be the person God intended you to be. I think it, this is somewhat difficult for us because slavery is such a radical concept, but uh, God freed people and gave them the law. But let's think a minute. Before we became Christians, we were slaves of sin. We were in prison. We were in chains by sin. Now God frees us from sin, and he gives us a law to say, this is what you're supposed to do. And what James tells his readers and what he is telling us is we are to listen, we are to receive, but above all, we are to do. And if we do not do what God's word tells us to do, we're fools, we're foolish. We're like someone who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. It is not enough that we hear, that we listen. We are, in fact, to put it into practice. We are truly free when we do what God tells us to do. He made us. He made us. He knows what is best for us. And we are to obey him. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews that for some time was sort of a distraction to me, something that I didn't quite understand. And it's a few pages back. It's Hebrews chapter 5, if you want to look at it. Um, and I want to deal with it to conclude the sermon, but also to tie it in with communion. It's verse number 8 of Hebrews chapter 5. It's speaking of Jesus. And it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It used to really bother me. Why would it be that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, why would he have to learn obedience? We'll set that aside for a minute. I want to talk about learning obedience through the things he suffered. If we take all that we've studied thus far in the book of James, we see that God has given us the lives that we have. He has put us where we are. He has arranged the circumstances of our lives. Some of the circumstances are pleasant. Some of the circumstances aren't so nice. But James says it's all a trial. It's all a testing of our faith. Someone said last week, I want that trial of riches. You know, I... Uh, I want the trial of success. I want the trial of perfect health. Well, God gives us what we need, what trial we need to grow up. Some are given poverty. Some are given wealth. Some are given singleness. Some are given marriage. Some are given children. Some are not. Some are given hard jobs. Others are given jobs that match their skills. Uh, others, it, it, you just, it's the whole spectrum of life. 
And in every one of these, we are to say, I choose to endure. I choose to obey. I choose to do what God says to do. And this is precisely what Jesus did. You see, when we look at verse number 8, and we say that he learned obedience from what he suffered, immediately we think, particularly because it's Communion Sunday, oh, we're talking about the cross, the crucifixion, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the spear in his side. And, and without question, I think that was great suffering uh, to be abandoned by the Father when he was on the cross. But I would suggest to you that all of Jesus' life, particularly his ministry, was a time of suffering. We can't imagine it, but try for a moment. Imagine that you are perfect. And you know what people are thinking. And then having to hang out with people. I would say that would be a great trial in and of itself. In fact, if you look in Matthew 17, Jesus says, you know, how much longer am I going to have to stay with you people? It was a trial for him, but he obeyed. He did what God said he was to do. And for us as God's people, as we go through our lives, we may wish, oh, I wish I was going through that trial. I wish God had given me that life. I'm not, I don't like this, I don't like this difficulty. Boy, they think they have a hard life. That's nothing. I wish I had their life. No. This is where we are. And what we are to do, God has given us new life, is to hear the word, listen to it, We are to receive it and then put it into practice. The Gospel of John really makes this clear. Jesus says, I only do the things my Father tells me. You have someone who is doing, who's putting into practice. Living in the information age, technology bombards us with all this information. We as Christians might think, well, I know the Word. I know what Scripture says. And James would say, I'm sorry, that's not enough. It is not enough. Obey. Put it into practice. And Jesus, on the night before he was put to death, asked, you know, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I want that. But if not, I will obey. Your will be done. And he obeyed. And so should we. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, I fear that sometimes we are so familiar with the Bible. Or, on the other hand, we seek to know more and more about the Bible. And in both cases, we are not doing what it says. We are not following the example of your Son, the Lord Jesus.
May we be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger in our dealings with our neighbors, the people we come in contact with every day. And may we learn and develop the skill, the virtue of listening to your word and accepting it, weeding our hearts out and in humility receiving it and then putting it into practice. how hard that is. But you're the one who said, let there be light. You are the one who said, let the light shine in their hearts. We ask for your strength, your wisdom to obey you. Today we remember the obedience of your son. who was given the most difficult choice, the most difficult path, and he chose to obey you. And because he did, we have life. We give thanks for that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
in the same way that being quick to listen is not only with regard to Scripture, but in the context of everyday life. Communion should also be seen in the context of everyday life, that this isn't some type of magical ritual. Uh, it is special. It is something that Christ ordained, and we do it because it is commanded. Okay. But in many ways, it is the beginning of all meals for this week, for this month. Uh, it is a reflection of God's generosity and God's hospitality to us. And I think that as we take it today, some of us will be having lunch together afterwards. It is the beginning of that meal. It is the beginning of our meals this week. It is God's gift to us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.